Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic. Last time we saw the first death as a result of the Rogue Moon Prophecy and talked about bad Jedi pickup lines. Now, in episode 17, we continue moving through the delightfully meta and utterly nonsensical KOTOR comics, get to know a bunch of powerful Sith artifacts, and see more Mandalorian nukes. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. We're starting today with the Knights of the Old Republic comic, A Vector, written by John Jackson Miller in 2008, a four-issue arc. Vector was also, it's a 12-issue crossover comic arc spanning four separate Star Wars comics, each set in a different era of the Star Wars timeline. There's the Knights of the Old Republic, there's Dark Times, Rebellion, and Legacy. Each arc of Vector follows a female Jedi named Celeste Morn as she interacts with characters from each of those comics and tries to protect the galaxy from a terrible Sith menace. All four arcs together tell the story of Morn's encounter with and control of the Murr Talisman, but each arc was also meant to have a lasting effect on the four separate comic series they appear in. For example, in the Knights of the Old Republic comics, Zane finds more of a purpose after encountering Celeste and decides to go on the offensive against the Covenant. Vector also serves to introduce Sith artifacts into the Knights of the Old Republic comics, as well as important plot devices of both incredible power and absurdity. If you like mystical Sith relics with D&D-ass names, this arc is where they start to take on prominence. We will try to name them all, even if they play no part in the story. Most of the names are simply references to background characters or items from Tales of the Jedi, such as the Helm of Dathka Grash. The Helm appears briefly in Golden Age of the Sith and a background character later identified in reference materials as Dathka's son. Returning characters. Thelm, Zamar, Cornelia, Lucian, Zane, Griff, Alec, Slisk, Jeriel, Dobbin, Del Momo, Mumo, Shell Jellivan, and Roland. New characters are Celeste Morn, a human Jedi who serves as a Covenant Shadow Agent. Shadows are Jedi who have had all traces of their identities and records wiped, even from the Jedi archives, so that they can move freely and take out threats for the Covenant. Morn has a tremendous track record and is single-minded in her cause. Karnas Muir, a former Jedi who fell to the dark side during the Hundred Years' Darkness and was eventually exiled with the rest of the dark Jedi who survived. Was given the mere talisman by fellow dark Jedi Sorza's sin to preserve his consciousness after death and turn those near him into rat ghouls enthralled to Muir's will. Though he's long dead at this point, his spirit lives on in the talisman, which is the first mythical Sith relic in Vector. The Mir Talisman is a large gold and jewel encrusted relic that honestly kind of resembles a trilobite with three arms on each side and a long straight tail. It's about the size of a normal human hand and it kind of looks like a golden, less H.R. Geiger version of the facehugger from Aliens. So yeah, just uh, trying to give you a little visual there. Um, the Ratgull Plague, uh, another Sith spawn like the Tarentatech, uh, it's a communicable disease that spreads via bite or scratch. 
Turning the new host into a rat ghoul in minutes or hours, the plague was originally created by Karnas Muir because Sorza Sin purposefully designed the Muir talisman not to affect force sensitives and some species. So Muir could not betray them so easily. Clever girl. Uh, Karnas Muir's plague affects all beings regardless. Uh, rat ghouls, a human-sized bipedal beast with slimy reptilian skin, um, mindless beast who can only run, bite, claw, and seek to spread the plague to others. There's no known cure, and the effects are irreversible, so anyone with even a small cut is to be killed swiftly before the disease spreads. The Republic, Jedi, and Mandalorians each consider rat ghouls to be highly infectious organisms that must be isolated and destroyed without remorse because their spread could easily continue unchecked across the galaxy and wipe out all known sentient life just so you know what we're dealing with. At the time, rat ghouls are all rat ghouls in the universe are confined to the Undercity on Terrace. And our final new character is Pulsifer. Dr. Demigol's second-in-command and the new leader of the Mandalorian Science Division. Most Mandalorians don't respect Pulsifer because he's not viewed as a real warrior. He is obsessed with Sith artifacts, but also with helping the Mandalorians and proving his worth to them. All right, our locations, we will be returning to Terrace and Coruscant. And for new locations, we will visit Jebel. Created for the series and first shown in this arc, Jebel is a resource-rich moon of Taurus that is totally covered in ice and tall mountain peaks, home to an unknown native species and many human colonists. After the Mandalorians broke the line in late uh, 3964, before Battle of Yavin, they easily took Jebel and soon established a warforge called the Ice Citadel there. Warforges are gigantic structures that produce armor, weapons, and ships for the Mandalorian war effort, built strategically between worlds they had conquered. Experiencing one of the saddest fates of any world we will discuss, Jebel becomes another environmentally devastated wasteland in this arc. Our timeline is uh, 3963 before Battle of Yavin, with a force vision showing brief glimpses of 19 before the Battle of Yavin, 0 after Battle of Yavin, and 137 after Battle of Yavin. I don't know how something can be 0 after the Battle of Yavin, but you know we got to work with what we got, I guess. Um, our story begins with Quinilia, Zamar, and Feln fighting off apocalyptic hordes of rat ghouls on the streets of Terrace. The plague has moved beyond the lower city, and the rat ghouls are fighting with strategy and using weapons, something the mindless, slobbering beast can't normally do. Above, a nameless Sith Lord looks on wearing a gold artifact prominently. As Quinilia, Zamar, and Feln are captured by the Rat Ghoul, something else the beasts don't do, they are brought before a vision of present-day Zankaric, who, confer- who con- confirms the events are happening in the present. The three Jedi Masters then see three figures they don't recognize, but we know as Luke Skywalker, his descendant Cade Skywalker, and Darth Vader. As the Masters are about to be killed, they awaken on the Dre estate on Coruscant and realize it was simply a shared force vision that occurred during Ronate's memorial, no less. They confirm that the gold artifact was the Mere Talisman, a powerful Sith artifact lost long ago on Terrace, and that Zane was present as well. They agree to investigate, but can't go without raising the suspicions of the Council, so they send a shadow. The Covenant retains shadows to investigate threats, retrieve Sith relics, and do so quietly. 
Their histories, identities, and all information have been deleted, even from the records of the Jedi Order. Lucian suggests a young but proven candidate named Celeste Morn. She is ordered to Terrace by the first watch circle by the first watch circle members to retrieve the mere talisman and kill Zane Carrick. Celeste Morn's resume of work for for the Covenant contains extensive work in mythical Sith relics. She destroyed the last known epistle of Marco Ragnos, which seems like a problem problem since destroying sacred religious texts is considered a war crime, but maybe the old Republic didn't codify them like that. She also uh, recovered Jory Darragon's amulet and the eye of Horak Mole. I think uh, why Jory Darragon got a special amulet with mystical powers to spend time and space when she wasn't a Sith and only received the amulet as part of a ruse by Naga Sadao at the end of Golden Age of the Sith is anyone's guess. Horak Mole, on the other hand, was a little-mentioned minor Sith Lord who sided with Ludo Kresh against Naga Sadao during the prequel Tales of the Jedi comics. We covered those in episodes 2, 3, and 4. Later, Celeste Morn tracks and kills Rackles through the Terrace Undercity. The Undercity is one of the worst levels of Terrace, a mechanical maze and sewer where criminal outcasts lived. The Rackle Plague arrived on the planet mysteriously in 4156 BBY and has been contained in the Undercity since that time. Morn is forced to kill the constable who's being turned into a Rackle, though she was able to send her children off-world after their rescue. As an explosion destroys a nearby wall, Zane and Griff run through being chased by a pack of Rackles, which Celeste easily dispatches. Cut off, Zane and Griff decide to follow the strange Jedi despite her obvious disdain for them. Celeste finds out Zane's identity but leaves him for the Rackles to kill, deeming the mere talisman more important than Carrick. As the group argues, explosions from Mandalorian excavations cause the floor to cave in leaving them briefly unconscious below. Coming to, they spy a group of Mandalorians digging through rubble and their leader, who Zane recognizes as Dr. Demigo's former assistant, Pulsifer, retrieve the mere talisman. The group cheers as they completed their objective and then fly to the upper city using jetpacks. Celeste and Zane, with Griff holding on for dear life, find jetpacks from dead Mandalorians and use them to follow an escape. Celeste does this to go after the talisman. Zane and Griff do it to finally escape the Undercity after days below. The trio is able to sneak aboard Pulsifer's ship bound for Jebel. Jebel is a frozen moon that orbits Terrus. For millennia, the ice has been mined for resources until the Mandalorians invaded and turned a large part of the world into an underground warforge. The Mandalorians created these mammoth foundries and shipyards on certain worlds that they captured to extend supply lines and produce new weapons, armor, and ships. Pulsifer's ship near Jebel <clears throat> Pulsifer's ship nears Jebel and seeks a landing spot but is rebuffed by the ground crew who say the main landing pad is for real warriors like Cassus Fett who is due to arrive with his ships and crew in the next day even if the Mandalorians didn't like Demigol they at least tolerated him but everyone even his crew seems to disdain Pulsifer as little more than a deranged scientist seeking a way out of Demigol's shadow so the ship circles the moon, seeking a landing spot. Meanwhile, Pulsifer seeks a way to control the mere talisman and believes the answer might lie in a large cache of files stolen from the Jedi Tower, including their financial records. As Pulsifer is admiring the mere talisman, the relic shocks him and then one of his, his soldiers. 
The ship lands, everyone disembarks, and Pulsifer seems to be mentally shaken. Celeste is able to escape to investigate, but Zane and Griff are caught and placed with an entire battalion of forced Mandalorian conscripts from seemingly every every species. The conscripts appear to be every prisoner in the Outer Rim freed by the Mandalorians and pressed into service. A warrior wearing crimson Rallymaster armor tells them that they will live by Mandalorian customs, speak the, speak the language, eat the food, and live by the code. The conscripts are told to take armor from the Ice Citadel, which has been built to fit their species prior to the planned Mandalorian invasion of Alderaan. Zane loses track of Griff and sneaks off, finding Celeste, who is furious he's still tagging along. Zane wants to get off-world and warn the Republic of the Mandalorian attack on defenseless Alderaan, but Celeste is still concerned with the Talisman. Griff had followed orders for once, going to the Ice Citadel and getting armor fit for a Snivian, so he's able to pose as a guard to get Celeste and Zane into the Ice Citadel as prisoners. They are looking for the files room so Griff can access the Jedi financial records stolen from Tyrus and also warn the Republic about the threat to Alderaan, but also about the presence of a Warforge. Prior to Celeste, Zane, and Griff finding Jebel's Warforge, Mandalorian resupply seems to have been a mystery to the Republic and Jedi. Griff, still holding the gun issued to him, fumbles it and shoots down part of the ceiling, cutting himself off from the two Jedi. Zane and Celeste have, have it no better, though, as they find pulse of her soldiers investigating the sound. The group's leader, who was electrocuted by the murder talisman earlier, suddenly begins to feel sick and transforms into a rackle. Before long, so do the other soldiers, causing Zane and Celeste to begin fighting for their lives. Unfortunately, the Neo-Crusader armor makes the beasts more difficult to kill, and the commotion attracts more Mandalorian soldiers, who predictably become instant rackle food. To make matters worse, these rackles are turning in minutes, not hours, and they can use weapons, which seems bad. The two make a run for it, seeing the plague spread like a wildfire through the conscripts below, and question how the plague spread to the moon. As they rush onto a balcony overlooking the troops, they realize that Jebel is a staging area for the entire Mandalorian core world's invasion force. And since the Ratgul Plague is spreading to tens of thousands of fighters who are supposed to leave the core in a few days' time, the plague could go galactic. Uh, you know, so no shortage of good news on Jebel. The plague begins to spread rapidly through the camp. Mandalorians fire on Mandalorians and soon rioting begins, but warriors of all species begin to change into rat ghouls, perpetuating the plague endlessly. Celeste and Zane escape the citadel by sliding down the icy exterior and finally get a chance to talk. Morn doesn't understand why Zane Morn doesn't understand Zane or why anyone thinks he could or would kill four other students. Zane explains that he was framed by a cabal within the Jedi and that his masters killed the students, though he's still unaware that Morn is a shadow with the Covenant. It's clear that she's having second, third, and probably fourth thoughts about killing Zane because she's had numerous chances to do so, even easily with his back turned and has so far refused. The two discover a comm center near the Ice Citadel and make for it to warn the Republic about the Ratgul Plague, Escaping Terrace, and the Mandalorian attack on Alderaan. The crew back at the Ice Citadel data center have all been killed or transformed by the plague while Griff is there, hiding and combing through the stolen Jedi financial records, hoping to get his hands on some of that sweet Dre trust fund money. Instead, Griff finds the Jedi Covenant files on the Murr Talisman and unravels much of the mystery. Karnas Murr, an ancient Sith Lord, had the talisman design to turn those in his immediate vicinity into mindless thralls subservient to his will. 
However, when the talisman was found to be ineffective against both force sensitives and some non-human species, Murr engineered the Rackle Plague so uh, to force the spread of his mindless army to all beings. Somehow, the Rackles and the Plague were quarantined to the Undercity of Terrace until they arrived on Jebel earlier this arc, but it seems that the ancient Sith Lord Murr is the original cause of Rackles. Griff also learns that Celeste is a shadow and works for the Covenant, specifically Lucian Dray. Nearby, Zane keeps watch while Celeste contacts Coruscant to inform them, of, inform them of all the good news on Jebel. Her contact, Lucian Dre, informs her that the mission remains unchanged. Unchanged. Secure the Mere Talisman and kill Zane Carrick. Morn again questions the orders to kill Carrick, but Lucian says that it must be done to stop the Sith and terminates the transmission. Zane enters and calls Jeriel and the gang to pick for a pickup, but also has one other call to make, so he asks Celeste to stand guard. While his back is turned working on the comm, she ignites her yellow lightsaber but cannot bring herself to make the killing blow, and Zane is none the wiser. By now, Carrick is infamous enough that his name alone can get him an audience with just about anyone, including Cassius Fett. Zane sends a hollow vid to Fett, warning him to avoid the planet due to the outbreak of the Rat Ghoul Plague on Jebel. Fett believes it's a trick to save more Republic worlds, and Zane admits it, it could be, but begs the Mandalorian to survey the moon before attempting any landing. When asked why a Jedi would help Mandalorians, Carrick says it's because they are people too, and they don't deserve to be turned into Rat Ghouls. Against Celeste's advice and his own better judgment, Zane heads back into the ice citadel to find Griff. Zane fends off some rackles, but is trapped and captured by others who knock him unconscious and take him prisoner back to Pulsifer. The junior Mandalorian mad scientist goes on an extended monologue about helping his people, and his issues with Mandalore, this annoyance with Cassus Fett, and using the Murr talisman to conquer the galaxy for the Mandalorians. You know, normal job stuff. He also threatens Zane with imprisonment in the Obliet of Remulus Drepa, in another ancient Sith relic which will become important, important momentarily. The talisman, which had wrapped its golden legs around Pulsifer's wrists despite being rigid earlier, then begins moving and intends to take on Zane as a new host because he is Force-sensitive. The Rackles that had been obeying Pulsifer attack and kill him, giving Celeste enough time to rip the talisman off Zane. As she does, it shocks her, taking her as the new host, and she encounters the spirit of Karnas Mur, the Sith Lord from the first Watch Circle vision at the beginning of the arc. The Rackles in the room all bow to her, and Griff arrives, freeing Zane. The spirit of Karnas Mur wastes little time attempting to overpower Celeste's will, and she explores her newfound power to control the Rackles. She tells Zane that everyone misunderstood the plague until now. While the Rat Ghoul change does strip the personality of the individual, their core skills are left intact and may be activated by whoever wields the mirror talisman. Rat Ghouls with no leader will simply serve their hunger and only seek to spread the disease. She demonstrates their latent abilities by having one of the Rat Ghouls repair, mount, and fly a basilisk battle droid on patrol around the ice citadel. Falling further into Mir's trap, she says that they can use the army to wipe out the Mandalorians and restore peace in the galaxy, but Zane senses that she's already lost control. 
Everything comes to a head when Griff accuses Celeste of working for Lucian and the Covenant on one of the Ice Citadel balconies. The three argue with Zane finding out that Krenda is Lucian's mother, with Celeste finally giving into her rage and letting off a blast of force energy. She has Ratgul's restrain Griff and Zane and prepares to kill them, and by now she has taken on yellow Sith eyes. But Zane points out the battalions of Ratgul's arrayed behind her, an infinitely growing army of the Sith, and all of it made possible by her and Karnas Mir's actions. Morn, confronted with her own aid to the Sith cause, is able to hold off Karnas Mir's spirit long enough to realize that she's falling to the dark side and come back to the light. Celeste wants Zane to strike her down and be rid of the talisman, though it would seek another host. Zane has a better idea. The Obliette of Remulus Drapa, the millennial old Sith device, is a coffin-sized suspended animation chamber built by the ancient Sith Lord Drapa to contain Karnas Myrrh because even his fellow Sith knew that the Rackle thing was a bad idea. This stasis casket also has the additional benefit of being a permanent torture device because Draper hated Mur just that much. They will simply place Morn in it, transport it to a Jedi facility for study, then wake her when they determine a means to sever the talisman's connection with Celeste's mind. You know, a simple and easy plan. What could go wrong? The Obliet will also have the effect of blocking the talisman's power and influence, meaning it won't be able to draw anyone with its presence or influence the Rackles. As she's being locked away for a very short time, Celeste thanks Zane for his help and gives him her key to the Sanctum of the Exalted, a covenant storehouse on the Outer Rim planet Ordin. Audrin. She says they may be able to assist with the talisman. Celeste also tells Zane that if the Masters really perform the Padawan Massacre, then something is amiss and Krinda isn't really leading the covenant because she wouldn't allow that to happen. Zane says he will see her soon and then the lid closes. The plan really wasn't that bad. I mean, for one of their plans, anyway. Celeste cleared all the rat ghouls off the top floors of the ice citadel so they wouldn't attack. But as we know, the best laid plans of mice and men off go awry. And these plans absolutely fell apart the second Morn was sealed within the obelette. When the talisman ceased to influence the rat ghouls, all hell broke loose. Without the talisman to lead them, the rat ghouls reverted to their animalistic tendencies, seeking only to feed and spread the plague. Zane and Griff survey tens of thousands of beasts below who begin tearing one another apart, but then realize that rat ghouls can climb regardless. Uh, rat ghouls back them into a corner on top of the ice citadel, but they are rescued by Jeriel, Alec, and Roll. Jeriel, Alec, Roland, and the rest of the gang arriving fashionably late in the Mumal Willowall. A Willowall, we found out since last week, is a storm, or a wind rather, that comes off of a rocky coast. So take that for what it's worth. As they take off, Zane wants to go back for Celeste and the Obelette because he made a promise, but that would have been absolute suicide before, and it's about to become an even worse idea somehow. As the group leaves the atmosphere, Cassius, Fett, Cassius Fett's fleet arrives out of hyperspace, but the Mandalorians have no interest in the Willowall. They have surveyed the moon and found Zane's earlier warning to be credible. So Fett eliminates the Rat Ghoul outbreak as only a Mandalorian could. He turns every nuke in his arsenal on Jebel, bombarding the entire surface. 
In an instant, Jebel is transformed into a planet-wide sea after nuclear explosions flash, boil, and melt the ice that had totally covered the moon until moments ago. Many of its characteristic tall, icy peaks remain, though, so that's something, right? Zane can only stand by and watch yet another nuclear devastation and environmental cataclysm. Zane despairs at the devastation of Jebel, a devastation he technically wrought, though he never expected anything like that. But because no good deed goes unpunished, Cassius Fett sends a calm to the Willowa, thanking Zane for the warning and for saving many Mandalorian and Republic lives in the process. Fett's fleet, content with its containment of the Rakul Plague, disappears back into hyperspace as quickly as they arrived. Shaken but resolved, Zane tells his assembled friends about Celeste, who saved both he and Griff. He places Morn's death squarely on the Covenant and decides they've done enough to harm enough harm to the galaxy. The assembled group in the Willowa is Jariel, Alec, Griff, Del, and Dob Mumo, Shell, Jelavan, Slisk, and Roland, and they all agree to help their buddy no matter what. Zane can think of no better way to honor Celeste's memory than by honoring her last request to visit the Sanctum of the Exalted on Audrin and using the secrets within to expose the Covenant, thus clearing their names for good. Far below, while mushroom clouds still rise from Jebel's surface and her seas quite literally boil, a black coffin comes to rest on an ocean floor. It is unknown whether this is a testament to the crafting skills of Romulus Drapa or the Sith power protecting it, but the Abulets survived being nuked and flash-boiled. It would keep Celeste Morn alive in stasis and torture until her discovery by Darth Vader in 19 BBY. Morn returned to the Abulet quickly to deny Vader the Sith power and re- would remain there until year zero, ABY, I guess, uh, briefly popping up to meet Luke Skywalker before going back for another nap. She would awaken for the last time in 137 ABY, meeting Cade Skywalker, a direct descendant of Luke and Anakin. On Hadabaddon, Morn helped Skywalker and many others mostly killed Darth Crate, the Sith Galactic Emperor of the time. After Skywalker resisted the urge of the talisman, Morn begged her for death as she was tired of the constant fight and feared giving in to the spirit of Myrrh. Skywalker honored her request with a painless painless mercy killing, then used a special force power to eradicate both the talisman and Myrrh's spirit for good. Finally, Zane's promise that someone would free her came to pass after 4,100 years in the obulet of Remulus Drapa. Most of the history of the Hundred Years' Darkness is told via flashbacks and exposition from Vector, especially in the Legacy comic series. Also, you might not like to know, many, many years later, Jebel became an ice world again. See, I told you. I told you it was going to come back to the nukes. I told you. You know, just just a casual, casual way to end a... You know, an infestation, like literally a plot point also found in Starcraft. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, I, I mean, I guess this one, I guess this was kind of justified. Like you can't really let that off the world. I don't, I don't know, though. They, uh, they definitely, uh, they definitely didn't, uh, investigate any ways to do it better though. They just, um, yeah, they, they killed it. They killed it real quick. Uh, 
but but it, but it's we're going to keep going not not this arc but uh but vindication is is going to be right up your alley as well because that is uh ai weapons defense systems so oh good good we're going to hit all of all of my yeah beats. everything everything for you buddy all right our next part of the story is Knights of the Old Republic comic Exalted written by John Jackson Miller in 2008 and it's a two issue arc our returning characters are Zane Griff, Vandar Toker, Vruk Lamar, Atris, Lucian Dray, Hazen, Felm, Zamar, Canilla, and the Mumo Bros. We will have meet the new character of Borjak, who is much like Felm, a blue-skinned Fioran warrior who achieved the rank of Exalted and is revered among his people. He is wary of Felm because he believes Felm defiles Fioran tradition in many ways, and we will be returning to Coruscant. Um, new locations include Audrin, the outer rim world with increasingly chaotic weather, full of overgrown forests and jungles, home to the superstitious and insular Fioran people who have lived in small warring tribes for most of their existence until Felon united them under one banner, achieving the hollowed rank of Exalted. The main settlement where the Sanctum of the Exalted is located is the largest one on the planet. The others are scattered little more than camps. The Fioran are a tall bipedal species with head and face tendrils who grow stronger as they age. They are roughly one and a half times the size of a normal human when fully grown. Members of the species can live up to 400 years. Audrin is their adopted planet and due to poor records, they don't know the name of their homeworld or what happened. The Fioran people give the title of Exalted to the strongest and oldest of their own. Once exalted, always exalted, which is how Fallon retains the title despite becoming a Jedi. The exalted are treated with mythic respect by the Fioran, and are the only living beings allowed to enter the sanctum of the exalted on Odrin. That is, until Fallon had desecrated it by allowing outsiders to turn it into a covenant storehouse for Sith artifacts. Our timeline is 3963 BBY. Our story. At the Jedi Temple on Coruscant... Lucien Dre is appointed to a seat on the High Council in a move manipulated by Hazen behind the scenes. Dre filibusters the group about the dangers presented by the revanchists, especially the scoundrel Alec, who is now in league with the alleged murderer Zane Carrick. As Lucien drones on, Masters Vruk Lamar and Vandar Toker have a whispering sidebar. Lamar doesn't trust Dre or understand how he could ascend so quickly in spite of the Padawan massacre, but is reminded by Toker that they allowed this to happen to move, that they allowed the appointment to move forward in order to get to the bottom of all the questions surrounding Dre. Though neither know who the identity of his mystery benefactor is um, and who's been coordinating Lucian's rise to power. Later, Lucian is contacted by Hazen and informed that Celeste Morn has arrived on Audrin. The Outer Rim planet of Audrin has savage, unpredictable weather, and the local Fioran people are inhospitable to outsiders on their best days. Normally, off-worlders would be killed by the mighty warriors for the penalty of stepping foot on the world. However, their exalted leader found long ago decreed that Jedi were allowed to store and study Sith relics in the Sanctum of the Exalted. The Fioran view this as a grievous insult to their traditions because the Sanctum is viewed as a holy place, where they revere dead, rest in the afterlife, but go along with it because a living exalted is considered a god king. When the Willowah touches down, 
Jeriel, disguised as Celeste Morn, is accompanied by the Mumo Bros, carrying a Sith artifact in a large suitcase. The artifact is far too heavy to just carry normally, so Celeste requires some help. Borjack, the leader of the Fjorn while Felna's away, attempts to enforce a one outsider rule and gets his ass kicked by Jeriel for the trouble. Fjorn absolutely hate Feln's off-world friends and would rebel against his leadership if not for their ancient customs of revering the exalted. Borjack leads Jariel and the Mumos to the Sanctum, a wooden building that looks much like an old church with a steeple, but he waits outside as he is not exalted. He notes that the recent increase in chaotic weather and violent storms has destroyed most of their crops and resources, making it so that the Fjorn can only perform upkeep on the Sanctum while their homes and other buildings fall into disrepair. If it seems like a noble savage trope, it sadly is, but it gets a little better at the end. As Borjak departs, the Mumo Bros drop the suitcase, which, shock- which shockingly contains Zane and Griff and not a Sith artifact. If you've thought the Vector Arc had some D&D ass named Sith relics, but not nearly enough, we'll get ready because we've literally got an entire holy building being defiled with them. Literally hundreds of Sith weapons, amulets, pieces of armor, books, and every other type of antique each stored in a yellow nullifying resin, including inside the resin with each relic is a covenant identichip that lists the name of each item. An internal caretaker droid tells Celeste to leave the artifact for scans and departs. The group reasons that the covenant didn't need internal security with a hostile local army guarding a sacred holy place on an outer rim world that few know about in the first place. The Mumos, of course, want to steal many of the priceless items, but Zane warns them that the items are highly dangerous and could easily kill them all and an entire planet. Just look at what they did to Jebel. Uh, Carrick says that they are only there to take pictures because the Jedi are keepers of the Sith artifacts, not the Covenant. Also, the items are really dangerous and probably unstable. Uh, Besides, photographic evidence of so many dangerous withheld objects should be enough to bring down the Covenant. Zany Griff will do the legwork while Jeriel and Mumo and the Mumo Bros head back to the ship with their dirty suitcase and head off planet to keep up appearances. Roland is off training and Alec has gone ahead to Coruscant to begin part two of the mission, in case you're wondering. After a day and a half of picture taking, Griff has had enough. Zane and Griff have taken hundreds of photographs for evidence and in the process come across, and we aren't making this up, Ludo Crush's pedicure set. Unfortunately, while there's an entire loot vault full of Sith artifacts in this arc, only two pieces are named. But they make up for it with a hell of an ending promise. The ambivalent droid returns and takes an artifact, and the two finally decide to follow it, finding an entirely new wing of the Sanctum used for testing the artifacts. This area is state-of-the-art and even has its own scientists cataloging the findings. The Fjorn people probably wouldn't be too happy about that. The Covenant have been testing the Helm of Dathka Grouch, which amplifies the user's force powers, and the Sith Sword of Iliadis, but also causes very bad weather within a six-kilometer radius. That means that the horrific weather that has devastated Fjorin society and is destroying their meager mean settlement is being directly caused by Felon's desecration of the Sanctum. It is unknown how long the Helm was tested, but the storms had been chaotic for many seasons, according to Borjak. 
Zane gets more pictures of the Sith artifacts and decides that's finally enough evidence to seal the deal, in addition to the ones from earlier. As he and Griff make to escape, they are captured by Borjack and the rest of the clan. Does Ludo Crush's pedicure set have a backstory? This is Star Wars. Of course it does. In 5000 BBY, <laughs> shortly before the Great Hyperspace War, Ludo Crush was vying for the title of Dark Lord of the Sith with Naga Sadao. Selah Corson and her family were human, but Sith were human Sith, but also slaves to Crush. Corson was charged with caring for her lord's feet, but hated him because, you know, slavery is evil and bad. As revenge, Corson let an infected toenail go unmedicated, causing permanent damage to Crush's ankle. Ludo retaliated by killing all of her family, but Sila escaped and went to serve Naga Sadao before ultimately becoming part of the Lost Tribe of the Sith. John Jackson Miller, who wrote both the Knights of the Republic comics and the Lost Tribe stories, confirmed the Pettigear set was the same one Corson had used. We promised a people's history, and we're going to give that to you, no matter how long or gross it is. Sith Pettigear set. This is fabulous imprisoned zane and griff learn some of feln's life story from borjack he says that feln is the greatest warrior he's seen in his 300 years he united the clans when no one else could the fiorin the fiorin always thought feln was magic and then a jedi scout landed on their world and they found out he really was Borjack laments that Fel never returns and has flouted and has flouted their ancient traditions, but Zane believes he can help. Since Felm is breaking Jedi law, he can be held and the covenant exposed while also freeing F- the Fioran of his corrupt influence. The solution would help both sides, but Borjack cares too much for his ancestors and his traditions. As the two chained friends are led to a gate, Zane intends to reveal the cause of the weather fluctuations to Borjack, but is knocked unconscious by Feln, who has just arrived for his first homecoming in ages. Uh, a side note, it's really hard to pin down Feln's age, uh, but he's almost certainly the oldest being ever inducted into the order as a Padawan. Uh, how did we arrive here? Uh, the Fioran title of exalted means strongest and oldest, but it's unclear if the age requirement is literal or figurative. Uh, we also know that Borjak is approximately 300 years old at the time this happens, because he says so. Now, assuming Feln is about the same age or close to it, and knowing that he was in the Order by 3984, because he spars with Lucian Dre as one of Krenda's students in a flashback that occurred in that year, the Fiorin was likely well over 200 years old when he entered the Order. Heck, even if he was much younger than Borjak, he would still have been over 100, and that's way older than 9, like Anakin, or your early 20s, like Nomi or... Nomi Sunrider or Ray in, in canon. Whew. Yeah. Yeah, I had to, no, I had to, no, do, I had to dig a little it's bit. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm just thinking. <laughs> I've never heard anybody I, there, say, say I mean, impressive as such exactly disdain. What it Thank was. I, there was something. I was doing a project where I was trying to find like the earliest it was something about calendars and there was a Islamic scholar who figured out by adding up all the dates in the Bible, like going back, tracing ages to what known ages were. And 
he figured out there was an error of when something was recorded. And like, it's one of the weird things where like people going back over books and recorded ages and matching them up and you find like, Oh, is it, Oh, okay. Is it the, is it how we're like three years? No, no, no. This was like, Christ, it was like finding so a flaw with, uh, I think the, uh, the Julian or the Gregorian. Know, I think it was second. I was looking for oh, the history okay, of okay, second. Okay. And he used, this is like the, oh. there's an Islamic text from like, I want to say the 12th century that comes up with corrections because it traces things back mm-hmm. to seconds, mm-hmm. which is insane. Um, That's yeah. I, it may not be what you're talking about. It's probably not. But there was something that had to do with the Julian cal- calendar um, early on. They had to go back and fix it because they they had like a leap year every third year instead of every fourth year. So it like I don't know. It messed it. Yeah. Anyway, as you can as you can see, the uh, the ca- the calendar systems for everyone are pretty fucked up. Boy, so yeah. Star Wars and uh, in real life. Yeah. Um, so Griffin Zane are held for execution in the camp while the Fioran Jedi used as a comm hub in the Sanctum to contact Coruscant for instructions. Borjack waits outside as the Sanctum's bouncer overhearing the conversation. Fallon tells Lucian that Zane had photographic evidence of the entire operation, but he destroyed it. They believe Zane's gang will try a daring Sith artifact raid and that Carrick himself is under the spell of the Murr Talisman to bring about a return to the Sith. Fearing exposure, Dre orders Fallon to use Option Ossus and destroy the Sanctum and all evidence with it. Option Ossus would, would activate a series of bombs placed under the hill on which the Holy Place sits. This instruction has three effects. First, it alerts Borjak that Fallon's sacrilege goes much further than he knew. Second, the severity of the order causes even Fallon to question it. And third, it rouses Hazan to countermand the order as he was silently monitoring the line. Hazen views the collection as a reliquary that the Covenant was working hard to build over 25 years. Lucian views it as a as Sith trash fit for the trash compactor of history. Velen leaves them to figure this mess out in their own hands and heads off to finally kill Zane, much to his delight. Back in the settlement, Zane tries to talk some sense into Borjak and begs him to turn on Velen for being a hypocrite and generally a bad guy. Borjak doesn't concede fully, but does step between Feln's lightsaber and Zane, invoking another sacred Fjorin law that any being who has been in the sanctum cannot be touched by weapons. So Feln sheathes his lightsaber on his pack animal and has to kick Carrick's ass uh, now since his whole clan is looking and judging. He does... He does manage to get some enjoyment out of it by throwing Zane's lightsaber half, halfway across the camp, just like Zane did to Feln's lightsaber the last time they met on Terrace in commencement. Anyway, Feln talks too much and gets flying kicked, then Tendril pulled by Zane, who immediately runs off for town. Borjak tells a curious griff that their laws and traditions allow for cheap shots and running away. Thelm gives chase through the village, and Carrot gets in some good hits before being overpowered by the exalted Fiorent. However, his kill is delayed when the Willowall arrives in atmosphere to raid the Sanctum of the Exalted. Or so, or so Thelm believes as he triggers the detonator switch on Option Asus, thus preventing any Sith artifact raids. Except the explosion is exponentially larger than intended due to the destruction of so many powerful Sith, Sith relics improperly. 
Audrin's weather careens and rain pours in sheets as the largest settlement of fjords in the galaxy is consumed in flame. The Sanctum sat in the tallest hill in a town full of wooden buildings, and Feln's act destroyed that hill, raining hellfire down on all that wood. Feln, horrified at what he did, has a moment of clarity that he immediately discards in favor of blaming it all on Zane. Calling his pack animal, the Fioran Jedi towers over the injured and cowering friends, Zane and Griff. But when his beast arrives, Felon reached for his lightsaber only to find a long stick in its place, as the moon, rogue moon prophecy had shown. Griff then produces Felon's lightsaber, which he had stolen earlier during the chase. Borjak, seeing Felon commit the ultimate desecration, leads a coup against their exalted by literally stabbing him in the back. Et tu, Borjak? The rest of the clan join in and help murder Feln. No amount of force power can save you from dozens of ten-foot-tall fjords encircling and stabbing you repeatedly. Feln died at the hands of his subjects with his realm burning, also just like the rogue moon prophecy foretold. In the aftermath, rain falls and puts out many of the fires that Option Asus had started, and it seemed like the weather is already improving only moments after Dathka Grosh's helm was blown to nothing. Borjak returns Zane's lightsaber, which his grandfather found earlier. Zane gives Borjak Feln's lightsaber since he's the new exalted, but he has it thrown in a fire. Griff laments that their hard-earned photographic evidence was scrubbed by Feln before his demise. The Willowa has good news, though. Probably unsurprisingly, when Zane warned the Mumu Bros against stealing Sith artifacts earlier, the Mumu Bros stole a bunch in their suitcase, so the group has the evidence they need to expose the Covenant. Now they just have to get to Coruscant. It may go without saying, but the Willowa obviously wasn't planning a second Sanctum raid. When it returned to Audrin, they had to come rescue Zane and Griff. The First Watch Circle is spiraling even further out of control. On Coruscant, Lucian has become a bitter drunk, Quinilia suicidal, and Zamar is considering a confession. Lucian briefly chokes Zamar for perceived defiance and denies Quinilia's request to speak with Krenda before telling them the plan. He knows that, Z- that Zane and his gang intend to return to Coruscant and expose them using the, the stolen Sith artifacts, so he's ordered Admiral Saul Karath to blockade the capital. Lucian further orders Zamar to Karath's new flagship, the Swiftsure, to assist and make sure that Zane is killed this time. This causes both Quinilia and Zamar to despair as they are aware that as they are aware Ronate and Feln's deaths fulfilled the Rogue Moon prophecy, and Zamar was supposed to die at the hands of Republic Friendly Fire of Republic Friendly Fire on a Republic ship from that very same prophecy. The Miraluka Jedi warns her fellow seer not to go, but Zamar goes anyway, though he's really considering a confession now. That concludes our story for the day. Thank you for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will continue our march through the Knights of the Old Republic comics. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to People's History of the Old Republic on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. You can follow us on Twitter at FotorPod or email us at FotorPodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.